0: We're studying the parallel passage To what Barry read in Colossians 2 That's that's our text, that is Ephesians 2 But the parallel in Paul's writing is Colossians And it's important that we remember Paul wrote Ephesians and Colossians as twin letters And they're written to the same area geographically And I believe they were circulated among all of the churches And so he doesn't repeat himself exactly in the two letters, but there's much overlap. The doctrinal issues of the area are very similar, and so he's carrying a very similar idea and thought to completion in both letters. He uses different phrases, but there's a lot of similarity and overlap, and you're going to see that as we continue to study this great paragraph here at the beginning of chapter 2. The the text is really verses 1 through 10. I've broken it down. We've already been two weeks here. Okay, And now we're a third week here. And we're looking at Ephesians 2, 1 through 7. We're just adding a little layer by layer onto our study. We're taking it one step at a time. It is way too much to digest in a few sermons, much less try to digest it in one sermon. So the, the message title for this morning is Glorious Good News. Glorious Good News. Today our attention falls to this section. We're continuing to build on the previous weeks, and so I'm going to do some overlapping and some reteaching. I think it's helpful to us. It's also helpful if we consider our complete inability, our complete inability, our truly unworthy state that we all live in outside of Christ, when we are outside of Christ, in our natural condition. The average so called Christian in our community thinks. That they are basically good people. And the average evangelical has drank so deeply from the well of humanistic philosophy, they can't even recognize it and separate it from a biblical theology. It's, it's, it's become almost completely, the gospel in most churches has become almost completely human-centered. It's about you. It's about your needs. It's about your destiny. Almost completely eclipsing the reality of the biblical gospel which is God. That's the biblical reality of the gospel. God! End of sentence. The gospel is not a quick fix to all your life's problems. The the gospel is the good news that God has come. And that echoes. That should echo through your heart and through your soul as a Christian. And just ravage your mind and bring it into complete submission to Him so that you can enjoy Him forever. That's His purpose in the Gospel, in the Good News, in telling you about Himself, is that you might fall in love with Him, not yourself. He's not trying to improve you. He's not trying to make you better. He's trying to help you see Him. And He does it in a person, and that person's name is Jesus Christ, the name above all names. And it's the only name given whereby men might be saved. So let me tell you. You are as despicable as you could ever imagine in your flesh. You are a cesspool of sewage in your flesh. You have no hope in your nature. But God. And that's the good news. That's the only good news. There's no hope in you. There's no hope in me. But oh, there is only hope in Him. And I want Grace Fellowship to grasp the doctrine of our complete and utter inability. I don't want us to skate past it. I don't want us to assume we know it. I don't want us to treat it as the pre-gospel. It's the only way you can ever receive the gospel. You can't receive good news until you know how bad you are. It's, it's popular on YouTube. It, it, I don't know if it's viral, but it's very popular. I don't know how many exact views it got, but there was a, there was a time about, I don't know, five, six years ago, that I got regular pleasure out of going to the YouTube and finding the video of John Piper and Bad. Just type that in if you go to YouTube and you'll enjoy it. It's, it's Michael Jackson's song Bad and it's John Piper saying, I'm that bad, I'm bad, I'm bad, you know, and then it goes through all the great people that you respect so much in the gospel, and it's the it's it's a beautiful picture of us. We are bad. I don't care how good you think you are, you are bad, infinitely bad. Completely and utterly incapable. And unless we grasp it, we can't get the good news. It's not good news. It's ho-hum without it. We are completely and utterly in, in, in incomplete and utter inability in our nature. We are wicked and rebellious by nature. We are despicable in our condition, in our flesh, before a holy and perfect and righteous God. That's verses 1 through 3. This is what Paul is telling us. And look what he says, I want to skip down, I'm not going to pick up the, the fullness of this text, but just to show you that I'm on the right track, I don't want you to ever doubt that, and I don't doubt it because it's in the Word of God. Look what he says this whole text is about if you look at Ephesians 2, 11. Therefore, remember, therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. Paul's whole point of writing this second chapter is that you would remember that you were outside of Christ. That you were outside of hope. Paul is calling on his readers to remember their natural condition before a holy God. And that's what I've been pleading with you to do uh, with me over the last two weeks and now this week. Some are probably ready to move on. You've heard enough. You, you think, man, I, I've had it with that hard stuff. I, I know it's hard to listen to how bad you are week after week. But it's the only hope you have of grasping the truth of the gospel. You've got to know how bad you are. Until you're desperate, you will never cling to Christ. Until you leave the bastion and the protection of your goodness, you won't ever be saved. You won't ever be saved. Here we come face to face with this doctrine in Ephesians 2.1. Paul makes it crystal clear. And you, and you, you Gentiles were dead in your trespasses and sins. This is coming face to face with the complete inability of our flesh, of our nature, to ever do anything to please God. God is holy. We cannot please Him in our nature. We are lifeless. We are incapable. We are... We have complete inability to do any righteousness or any good deeds that God will accept. We have no hope. We have no hope. That's what verse 1 teaches us. Dead in this context is really speaking about that. It's not speaking about physical death. It's speaking about inability. As much as a dead man is incapable of standing up and talking to you, so a man that is outside of Christ is incapable of pleasing God. That's how incapable you are. Utterly, completely hopeless. That's the condition you're in this morning if you're outside of Christ. I don't care what suit you put on in the casket, what perfume you wear, what jewelry you decorate yourself with, you are dead in that casket. And you have no opportunity to rise up and do anything Anything. And that's where you are spiritually if you're outside of Christ. You are in the casket of your spiritual life. I don't care how well you dress the corpse. I don't care how much good, smell good you spray on it. I don't care what jewelry you decorate it with. That corpse in your nature, that spiritual corpse is dead. Completely incapable of any good action towards God. That's who you are. That's how hopeless you are. Right now, if you're outside of Christ. And then he goes further in verses 2 and 3. He wants to make sure we get the picture of how clear it is that we are dead. In which, in verse 2, In which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, all, we, all, Jews and Gentiles, we all once lived in the passions of the body and mind and were by nature children of wrath. Like the rest of mankind. In verses 2 through 3, Paul gives a great detailed outline for what dead means. First of all, we are dead in our sins. Second of all, we are enslaved to the ways of this world and to Satan. You are enslaved to the world. You are enslaved to Satan. It is useless to try to improve your condition, is what he's saying. You're a slave. You have no rights. You're a slave to sin. You're a slave to the world. You're a slave to Satan. And we, third, are in our natural state totally and completely deserving of God's wrath for eternity in hell. That's that's the outline he gives in verses 2 and 3 about dead. He expands it. It's an excursus. He moves away. He says, you are dead in your trespasses and sins. He could have gone right to verse 4. But God. But he didn't want to do that. He wanted to make sure you didn't excuse your deadness. Come up with some way around it. He said you're dead. Not only are you dead, but you walk according to the ways of this world. You are enslaved to the power of the prince of air. And you are under the wrath of God for eternity. Any questions? As your professor said at the end of his lecture. Any questions? You want to talk more about it? You need more detail? It's all there, isn't it? We are completely incapable of any good. In our natural self. What I'm saying is you're incapable of making a move toward God. Don't fool yourself. Do not think that you can even take one millimove toward God. You're dead. You can't even flinch toward God. If you're sitting here this morning outside of Christ and any thought enters your mind that says... Run to Christ. That didn't come from you. And we're going to get to how good it is that you had that thought, but that didn't come from you. Because you don't have the capacity to do that as an outside of Christ person, as a person who is still a sinner, as a person who is still counted under the wrath of condemnation of this holy God. You don't have the capability of even flinching, of even looking, of doing anything in way of moving towards God. You're totally and completely, according to Paul, dead. This is a hopeless condition, and it's as hopeless as it can be. If you're sitting here today, and you're without Christ, this is your condition. Make no mistake, this is your condition. You are dead, you are a slave, and you are under God's wrath, and you are going to hell. You have no hope. You have no hope. There's no need to discuss it. There's no need to try to rationalize it. There's no need to try to excuse it. There's no way to excuse it. You have no hope. This is who you are in yourself. And I want to be clear. I don't care if you have been in church since the day you were born. If you were, as some were fond to say in our culture, born in the nursery, waiting on preaching to start. I don't care. I don't care if you're a pastor. I don't care if you're an ordained deacon. I don't care if you're a missionary. I don't care who you are. If you're outside of Christ and you are dependent on your own goodness, you are hopeless. You're putting fine clothes and good jewelry on a dead corpse. And you stink before the nostrils of God. That's who you are. And and I'm not saying that to, to sound... I am saying it to sound like that. I, I am opposing you. Not because I oppose you, but because the Scripture and the God of the Scripture right now as you it, opposes you. You are His enemy sworn to the death. That's what Romans 5 teaches us. You are an enemy of God. Now you might want to make some people mad in this world. And you might want to oppose your neighbor down the street. You think you're better than him. But let me tell you, you don't want to be the enemy of the living God. But that's what you are outside of Christ. That's your condition. It doesn't matter to me if your friends generally consider you to be a moral and good person. That doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter to God. It doesn't matter because you're outside of Christ. And if you're outside of Christ, then even today you are under His condemnation. You are under His wrath. It's not going to happen one day. It's already here. You are under His judgment. You are sitting in darkness and the light witnesses against you. You cannot work your way out of this condition because you are completely incapable of doing anything good in the eyes of God. You can't do anything to improve yourself. Some of you, listen, some of you need to hear this. Stop trying to be good Confess that you are bad. Stop trying to improve yourself. Come to grips with the fact that you are not good. And any action you do stinks before God. I don't care what it is. You want to read your Bible? Good, it stinks before God. You want to give? Give, but it doesn't do you any good. It stinks in His nostrils. It is not obedience. Do anything. Go to the mission field. Be a pastor. Hide in the deacon deacon ministry. I don't care. God doesn't care. You're not improving your condition. You're only witnessing against yourself. You're only further condemning yourself. This is your condition. You cannot work your way out. You are dead and you are incapable. That's verses 1 through 3. He doesn't put a, a period in the Greek, there's no period. There's a conjunction. Two little letters, three in your English Bible. But God, I've preached for two weeks and now a half a sermon. On how bad you are, and a little bit about how good God is. And this morning, I want to dive into the deepness of how good this God is. Listen, you stink, and you are dead, and you are rotting even now under His judgment. And yet, He is good, and He loves you in Christ. He loves you in Christ. Listen, I, you you're dead, you're enslaved, you're under God's wrath. But God, who is rich in mercy, from out of, because of, His great love is actively pursuing your soul which He has purchased in His Son, Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to talk about the rest of the sermon. If I described you at the first half of this sermon, if you're sitting under God's judgment, if you have no hope, if you don't know Christ, please don't shut the the door now and stop listening. Open yourself up. Listen completely. To the message of the good news, you've gotten the bad news. You've gotten the diagnosis. You know how sick you are. You know how dead you are. But now, listen to his remedy. Listen to his remedy. But God, listen. Paul does something very important here with a liter- what we call a literary device. It's a chiasm. He sticks but God in the center. It's the pivot point of the text. Everything rotates around but God. But in the first verse, listen to what he says. We are dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 2. We are enslaved to this world and to Satan. Pivot point. But God raised us up and seated us with Christ Jesus in the heavenly places. We are under the wrath of the curse of God. But God in the coming ages will show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Do you see what He's doing? A, part A, compares to A1. B compares to B1. C compares to C1. We have a parallel passage with a but God in the character of God given in verse 4. Verses 1 through 3 are parallel to 5, 6, and 7. He says, this is your condition and here's the remedy. God's done it. God's done it. What do I do? Nothing. God's done it. He's done it all. He's done it all in His Son, Christ. This is tremendous good news. How good is this news? Well, let's look at it in three stages. First, we are dead in our sins. But Christ, we have been made alive in Christ. And it's a free gift. In verse 5 of this text, where we are, verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespass, He repeats the phrase. He's showing you what He's doing. You see it? And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But God, when you were dead in your trespasses and sins, A relates to A1, made you alive in Christ Jesus. Verse 5 repeats the statement of verse 1 so that we don't lose the contrast. We don't miss what He's doing. He's making a point here to contrast our condition with God's work. And so he goes on to say that regeneration, which is the subject here, made us alive, it's the same thing as regeneration. The Word is not present, but the idea is you are born from above. You were dead in your trespasses of sin, but God birthed you from above. He made you alive. He made you alive. Paul's saying that we were dead, incapable of moving toward God in the slightest of degrees, and yet God... Made us alive. God saved us. He did not make it possible for us to be saved. And this is where the human gospel enters. This is where the, where the majority of the western church misses it completely. Because they want to strike this deal with the sovereignty of God. They don't like to submit themselves to God and His sovereignty. So what they say is this. God sent His Son because He loved us and He died on the cross And He made it possible. He made it potential. He gave this gift, maybe, and the maybe includes your action, so that you can choose Him. That is a lie from the pit of hell. If that offends you, then the Bible offends you. God did not make it possible for you to be saved Or to make a decision to save yourself. God saved you at the cross. That's the good news. He didn't leave it up to me and you. We're dead. We can't make a move towards God. Had He only made it potential for us to be saved, we would all go to hell, but He didn't do that. He reached into the depths of the grave like He did with Lazarus and He said, come forth. He birthed us from on high. He gave us new life. That's what God did in the past in Christ. And He's applied it in the present to our lives. And I know it's offensive to you because you were raised in in a society that taught absolute, complete, and utter libertarian free will. But libertarian free will just does not exist. It's not part of God's world. We are slaves of sin. We are dead in our slavery to sin. And God makes us alive and calls us slaves of Christ. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. God does it, not us. Listen, if it was left to me, I would die and go to hell. But thanks be to God that He did not leave it to me. He was paid the sufficient substitutionary sacrifice for my sin and my separation from Him on the cross of Jesus Christ. He did it. You and I did absolutely nothing in this process of being made alive. God did it all. Now, that's emphasized by the fact in this verse. You say, how do you get that here, preacher? How do you get it? Listen closely. If you go back and examine the text, there are no active verbs in the first three verses. Dead is a passive verb. Something that's been done. It's it's not you acting, it's your condition. Everything else is a participle describing the deadness. Walking is not an active verb. That's a participle. And you never thought you'd use Greek and all those, I mean... English and all those diagrams, did you? When you read God's Word, you need the diagrams, and you need to think about what He's saying. He's saying, you are dead, and this is your condition. You're walking according to the course of this world. You're following the prince of the fire." That's not an active verb. There's no active verbs in the first three verses. But God, verse 4 And then His character is displayed, like we talked about last week. He is rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, the very first active verb in the sentence, made us alive. God is active in this passage, not mankind. You're not doing anything. In salvation, God's doing it. The Bible says there's three active verbs in this sentence. God made us alive, God raised us up, and God seated us in the heavenly places. All of them active, all of them past tense, all of them completed, they're done. Now that's the good news. That should get an amen in the house of God. Not a a glazed over stare. That should get a worship response. When Isaiah saw it, he fell at the throne of God and worshipped. When John saw it in the Revelation, he fell before God and he worshipped. When you come into contact with the beauty of God's grace, you can't help but worship. It's the right, right response from your heart. So listen, God raised us up. He not only gave us life in Christ, but He gave us a position in Christ. We are seated with Him in the heavenly place. We're seated with Him in their heavenly places is what the text says. We, We have life in Christ. We have a position in Christ. So as long as Christ is seated at the right hand of God, my salvation is secure. Until Jesus Christ is kicked off the throne of heaven, I cannot lose my salvation because He has put me in Christ in the heavenly places. So until God the Father rejects His Son Jesus Christ, He will not reject me. You want hope? That's hope. You want good news? That's the only good news. You can't lose it because you didn't do it. God did it. He saved you and He raised you up and seated you in the heavenly places with Christ. So much so that when He sees His, his Son, He sees the church. And when He sees the church, He sees His Son. Oh, it's a beautiful passage. It's a beautiful truth. Your conscience may in your flesh well up against it, but if it does, rebuke it. Accept this offer of free grace. We have our position in Christ, and our security is there. This is a complete contrast to verse 2. If you look back at verse 2. Outside of Christ, you're a slave of this world and you're a slave of the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is working in the sons of disobedience. But God ransomed us from that awful slavery and seated us with Christ in the heavenly places. And that's tremendous. That's glorious grace. Second, the second thing is that He has raised us up in Christ and seated us with Him in the heavenly places. Now third, third, we see that God will give us the immeasurable treasures of heaven throughout all the ages in the person of His Son. Listen, in verses 19 through 21, in in chapter 1, look back up at Paul's pastoral prayer and look what he says. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His great might, that He worked in Christ Christ, When He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly places. God did something through His power. He raised up His Son, Jesus Christ, and seated Him in the right hand of God. Okay? So we are not Christ. The passage doesn't say we are seated at the right hand of God. That's the position of authority. That's the position of power. We don't hold that position. Christ holds that position, but because He is there... And we are grafted into Him, the true vine, the true Israel, the true olive tree. Now we as the branches find our position with Him. We're there with Him. We're not Christ, but we're in Christ. And that's what He's taught us so far. But now He moves beyond that. To talk about this power which is displayed in Christ or through Christ to us, the believers. But, but what if it runs out, Carlton? What what if it runs out? I mean, we've been raised and we've been made alive, but what what if it ceases at some point? Wouldn't that be misery? To come into a relationship with the living God and then at some point, that relationship comes to an end. That's worse than any divorce you can imagine. That's the worst thing imaginable. To be made alive and then fall out of favor with God. That would be unimaginable. But verse 7 guarantees us it can't happen. Again, look at the text. Look what it says to us. So that He did this. He saved you, He raised you, and He seated you so that in the ages, in the coming ages. So how many ages are coming? All of them that are in the future. All of them. Every one of them. Ages upon ages upon ages. Millennia upon millennia. That's what's coming. In that, he's going to pour out the riches of his immeasurable kindness towards you in Christ Jesus. Bill Gates is the richest, I think he's still the richest man in the United States of America. said somewhere, last time I saw it, he may have lost some money lately, I don't know. But somewhere, let's just say in the neighborhood of 56 billion is his net worth. Let's say he came to you this morning and he said, I've made you the recipient of all of my goods. They're yours. Now and forever. And let's just say you enjoy that for a hundred years. That would be like a grain of sand. When compared to all of the grains of sand on the seashore of the world in comparison to the immeasurable riches of God's kindness. Whose kindness do you want to come under in this life? Bill Gates? That's good for a little while. Maybe a hundred years. Maybe a lady passed away this year, this this past week, 116. I think they said she's the oldest known person in the world. Maybe you're going to live to be 116. And you're going to enjoy Bill Gates' riches for all those years. That's wonderful, isn't it? Your mind's running a list. Boy, that's good. I made a thousand good things. There's a thousand good things I could do with all of Bill Gates' money. But at the end of that 116, it's over and it's gone. That's like a grain of sand on the seashore when you compare Bill Gates' wealth and his riches to the wealth and riches of our great God who says now that you're in Christ, you've come under my beneficence. I will bless you. I will love you. I will give you the riches of my kindness and my grace throughout the ages to come. That's good news. I don't know how else to say it. That's good news, people. And we should fall at His feet. We shouldn't, we shouldn't, we should not get into a debate about words and about ideas and about our rights and God's rights. We ought to fall on our face and say, Oh God, if I'm your slave, let me be your slave for all the ages to come. Pour out your goodness, God. Pour out your goodness because in your flesh you have no hope. You better, you better enjoy the wealth of this world because when it ends, it's over for you and there's nothing but wrath coming. But oh, for those who are poor paupers in this life and they're under the beneficence of their Father in heaven and He pours out His goodness on them. Let me tell you, you may be poor right here and right now and the economy falling may be taking everything you've got to stay above the water. But let me tell you, the day you die and stand in His presence, He will say, welcome! Welcome! Welcome into my goodness. Welcome into my kindness. And guess what? The title deed's been signed. It's yours for all the ages. Let let goods and kingdoms go. This worldly life also. That's what we ought to be saying to the world. That's how we ought to be responding to our lives. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing, my great Redeemer's praise, the glories of my God and King, the triumphs of His grace, His amazing grace. That's what we're talking about right here. We're talking about a grace that took C.S. Lewis from the point of calling God nothing but a nagging nanny. He read Psalms and he said, God's like an old woman. He's running around and saying, praise me, praise me, praise me. And then the grace of God struck him like a lightning bolt and he spent every living day of his life from that point forward with his pen on paper, magnifying the name of this God. This is the grace that came into contact with a man, Martin Luther, while he was beating himself into submission and trying to live under the law of God and finding nothing but a curse when he saw the grace of God. His soul was set on fire and he was set free. This is the pen. This is, these pen words are what came into Charles Wesley's mind when he wrote, And can it be... The dungeon was flung open and light flooded in and now my soul is set free. That's the grace I'm talking about. That's what I'm trying to portray to you. I'm doing a sorry job of it, I'm sure. But listen, He has told us all we need to know. His grace is sufficient. In your weakness, He is made strong. Go ahead and depend on Him. Lean on Him. You'll be made powerful. And his name will be exalted to the end of the ages. Some if for some reason you're sitting here and you say, Well, I'm I'm saved because God knows I've done good things. I've I've gone to church, I've read my Bible, and and I give I, I give to his cause. Surely God loves me. Because I've done all these things. You're no different than me the first nineteen years of my life. I spent the better part of my life in church. And doing good things and being a leader for Jesus. Because He needed me. And because I chose Him. And then I read Ephesians 2. And the dagger that struck me in the heart was, You're dead. I've acted. You have not. I've saved you. You did not save yourself. And from that moment forward, I've not been perfect, but I have fallen consistently at His feet and thanked Him. And praise His holy name. And so you're sitting here with all your good works and your self-righteousness. You say, surely God loves me. No, God doesn't love you. If you believe your salvation is based on anything besides the treasure of the work and person of Jesus Christ, then you are without Him and He does not love you. Believe the good news. Cling to the work of God, not your work, but His work, and the person and work of Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Maybe you're here and you say, I'm saved. I'm saved. Carlton, I know this, God. If you heard this message, and what's saying in your mind is, well, I know that I was saved by the good news. But now I have to work to please God. But man, I'm so tired. I'm so tired. I'm tired of trying to please God. I'm tired of trying to work for God. Then don't! God doesn't need your service. He never asked for it. He's not a man that He needs our hands to work. No. What you need to do is rest and abide in the vine. You need to rest and abide in the vine. You don't need a to-do list to get sanctified. You need the to-done list that Jesus did. And you need to cling to it. And you need to read it to yourself over and over and over and over again until it springs up to new life in you. Stop trying to work your way into heaven, even as a Christian. The good news doesn't get you in. It gets you in, and it gets you to the kingdom, and it gets you throughout the ages. It's one message. It's the message of the good news. Drink anew, Christian, from the fountain of His grace. Drink anew from it. Soak it up. Let it become who you are. Let it infect you. Let it be your DNA. Let him do his perfect work. Let him shed his mercy and kindness on you. Stop with your working and your worry and cast your cares on him. And be gra- realize that you are grafted into the true vine, to the olive tree. He has saved you. He will work his good pleasure in you. We're going to get there. That's verse 10. I'm going to stop. I'm going to stop and I'm just going to do something very odd for us. I don't do this very often, but I'm just compelled to. And this is going to be the end of our service. We know nothing else is going to be done. Would you just pause in prayer with me? Just bow before God. I'm not going to ask you. We're not going to play any soft, kind music to make you feel some emotion.